Welcome to the Coaching by Bell podcast, the podcast where each episode we feature women entrepreneurs, founders, and leaders in business. The podcast showcases a variety of interviews, coaching style conversations, and live coaching sessions. I am your host, Isabel Hertz. I am a business coach integrating past and present, bridging old stories with new intentions. I help people hear between the lines of their story, tap into insights, inner wisdom, and opportunities to hear their own voice as a means for change. Let's get listening. I'm here today with Madeline Shaw. Madeline has been a social entrepreneur for almost three decades. She is best known as the co-founder of Isle, formerly Lunapads, a Vancouver-based B corporation that was one of the first companies in the world to market reusable menstrual care products. She is also the founder of G-Day, a rite of passage celebration series for tween girls, and Nestworks, a family-friendly co-working community. Her first book, entitled The Greater Good, Social Entrepreneurship for Everyday People Who Want to Change the World, is launching in October. Hi, Madeline. Thank you for joining me today. My absolute pleasure, Isabel. So I begin every podcast episode asking the question, what was your inspiration? Well, I would have to say for my career is social justice for sure. Feminism in particular kind of inspires every single thing I've ever done. All of my ventures have somehow got In fact, to get a little more specific, I would even say an eco-feminist political agenda behind them or underneath them or around them or whatever running through them. That's sort of the whole point for me. What was the seed of that first business venture when you realized, okay, I'm going to take this passion and this way of wanting to be in the world and I'm going to start something to inspire change. So back in the day, it's my early 20s and, you know, I'd gone to university and gotten introduced to feminism there and in fact took a degree in women's studies, what's now known as gender studies. So super into it, but in my heart, I wanted to be a fashion designer. I'm very creative. And so it was kind of a weird process of trying to go, no, no, not fashion. That's such a yucky non-feminist business, but in my heart, I wanted it. And so there was a bit of back and forth there. I did a bunch of traveling. And all the while, as cisgendered woman with a uterus, I was having my period like you do all the time. And that was the thing. I'd come off hormonal birth control by then. So I was really experiencing my cycle for the first time in my life. I was on hormonal birth control for 10 years before that. But really struggling with the products, I was having allergic reactions to them. And so it was kind of this weird combination. Like I heard of washable menstrual pads and I actually saw some, but the fashion designer in me didn't love them. And you had to sew Velcro into your underwear to use them and all these ridiculous things that most people would never, ever be able to do. But as someone who'd been sewing her whole life, I actually found it a really intriguing challenge. And I was like, why don't I make my own to solve for my own problems? So the fashion designer in me loved doing that, but also the feminist in me loved it because it was like, oh, maybe I don't have to buy any of these stupid plastic products that are giving me infections and don't do any favors, give zero Fs for women's health, really, when it comes right down to it. So I had this experience, so I switched over from using disposables to using cloth washable menstrual pads and period underwear that I'd made myself. And the experience I had of it was so exciting and so interesting. It was this totally 
transgressive moment. If you think about it in the early 90s, and back then you're seen as the crunchiest, hippiest, weirdest thing that you could possibly do. And a lot of people were like, oh, you know, just would have this very visceral kind of squeamish reaction. Like, really? I actually you touch it and you do the thing. And But for me, in having the experience of doing that, of washing the pads and using them, was actually this radical emperor has no clothes epiphany that everything that I had been conditioned to believe about periods was actually total bullshit. And it was incredibly liberating. I was so happy. I was like feeling like I'd really kind of discovered something wonderful and exciting. And when you talked about the inspiration point, it actually started many years earlier as an adolescent girl when I, I don't know if you're familiar with the book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret by Judy Bloom. Yes. I love that book so much. It's about an adolescent girl who's really excited about puberty and really excited about starting her period. And she and her friends have this club and they talk all about it. And I was one of those girls and I was fascinated by it. And I actually, I kind of had this fantasy that when I started my period, something wonderful would happen, like something special. There'd be some kind of a party. There'd be, and there's nothing in my cultural tradition. There's no bat mitzvah that would have kind of given me that idea. It was just something inherent in me that I wanted. Needless to say, it never happened. Bada bing, bada boom, disposable products, birth control, whatever. So it's sort of divorced from this thing that I had really been very interested in and very excited about until my mid-20s. So I start washing my pads, come off the hormonal birth control, have this epiphany that the thing that my 12-year-old self knew was special and did matter. And that I was just like, oh, no, 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 shoving the tampon, keep going, keep calm and carry on. It just all came like this huge tidal wave of emotion and inspiration and information. And that's what motivated me to actually commercialize the product. So to take them from just something solving for me to going, I want other people to feel this way. It was this really, really powerful emotional moment. And also having known I wasn't ever really going to have a traditional corporate career. I just knew it wasn't going to happen. So the idea of entrepreneurship was the natural segue to making it possible for me to sell these products and in order for other people to have this experience. I've been thinking a lot and observing a lot more about my own period and what that does inside my body. And so it's really interesting to hear your experience because actually for me, it was the opposite of you when I was growing up. I didn't even like the word period. And more and more, I've been realizing how much there's this emotional component to it every month and how it can actually be almost like a spiritual experience to go through and to allow your body to rest or to connect in with what you need because there is a large emotional piece. And physiologically, our body's probably grieving, emotional grief because we're going through something and not producing the way that we're wired to produce or we would normally be. So it's really interesting, yeah, to hear your experience of it. I think there is a whole emotional component, but it's the culture is go, 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 move, 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 keep kind of producing. But actually, when I get my own period, I need a couple of days to just chill, to not be doing a whole lot. There's many emotions, some that I'm aware of and some that I'm not. (laughs) Part of what this opened up for me or part of what this deeper experience of being aware of my cycle opened up for me was the idea that it was connected to like, oh my God, hey, the lunar cycle is 28 days. What do you know? Coincidence? Hey, look, everything powerful in nature is cyclical. Everything, the seasons, the tides, 
the in-breath, the out-breath. <laughs> There's literally nothing that isn't. And so what developing a sense of personal connection to all of that felt really important to me. It was like, oh, this is available to me, this form of power and understanding and rhythm. And as you say, I often still think about in terms of the menstrual cycle, in terms of the seasons of the year, right? In that, you know, when we're bleeding, it's winter, we're tired, we're draining, we're letting go, we're resting. And when we're spring, in the endometrial phase, we're heading where energy, you know, things are starting up. And by the time it's summer, there's this kind of rich, ripe, ovulatory kind of quality. And then as we head into fall into our luteal phase, again, the letting go, right? And the slowing down. And I just feel like we have so much to learn from that. Like if we could just be personally dialed into that and just let ourselves be in that rhythm, I think we'd be a lot healthier and happier and more emotionally balanced. I totally agree. This period, my most recent one, I actually was resisting being tired so much. And for the first time I said, what if I just didn't resist it? And I just told myself that it wasn't going to be productive today or I wasn't going to do anything and just see where my energy goes. And it was totally different. It was like, I'm really tired and that's okay. And I'm just going to let people know that I'm tired and I'm just going to take a slow day and I'm going to just go have fun tonight and just take the night off or just switching the mind frame because I can't change what's going on. And that was when I realized there's this whole other deeper level of emotional complexity happening. So I think it's really fascinating what you can tap into, like you're saying, when you, and you can tie it to the seasons and the, the changes that are happening, the cyclical periods that happen all the time around us that are already taking place. Very, very interesting to me. So take me back to you're connecting to yourself, you're realizing what it's like to be a woman, you're seeing, okay, I'm not going to take a corporate path. What was the first step and what was the first challenge that you faced going, okay, I'm going to be a woman entrepreneur and I'm going to do this. I'm going to take this passion I have for eco side of it, the planet and women's reproduction and what we all go through, and I'm going to weave it into something beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, it was hugely challenging. I mean, for me, because I didn't have any business experience or educational background at all. So I, I kind of had no clue of what I was doing. I had been in junior achievement and I had only the vaguest notion of like, okay, you need to figure out exactly how much something's going to cost. And then you've got to talk to people about why they want to buy, you know, like all the just the raw basic mechanics of commerce. And before that even happened, I had to work through some unhelpful kind of feminist conditioning around it. So just kind of in my mind, the association of selling something kind of made you a capitalist, right? And in my mind, I had kind of conflated patriarchy with capitalism, which is patriarchy and capitalism are buddies, let's face it. But where that led me was like the idea of if there was something sort of inherently exploitative about commercial activity, which is, is super disempowering. So I needed to unpack that and kind of look at it and realize that if I was going to sort of divorce myself, go, oh, well, I don't want to have anything to do with money because that's somehow, you know, an um, ethically compromised position. It was actually really counterproductive because it was going to stop me from pursuing my dream. And it was also going to maintain the locus of power and control in people whose values I didn't share. So it was almost like, well, if I'm not going to do it, <laughs> 
they're going to keep doing it their way. And I don't believe in that. And so it was actually really helpful at that time. I, I became introduced to, I read two books. Dame Anita Roddick had started The Body Shop, as you know, in the late 1970s. And to me, she was the first person I saw who was a woman who was using business to employing ethical stories and sustainability stories in the name of business in a way that had integrity. And I'd never seen anybody do that before. It was like, wow. And so having her kind of as a role model was really important to me, the if you can see it, you can be it kind of premise. And the other book I read was The Ecology of Commerce by Paul Hawken, and uh, which I still highly recommend. And just basically making the argument that commerce in and of itself is not an unnatural state. Like people, there needs to be an economy of some sort. It just needs to be sustainable and regenerative and humane. So those were really important thinkers to me. And so once I sort of became educated that you could, that it was possible if you imbued, like the the tools in, in and of themselves of business are kind of values neutral. Like they're neither good nor bad. Same with money. It just depends on what you do with it and the intention that you bring to it. And so I needed to kind of get past that. That was a big challenge. And then I signed up for an entrepreneurial training program at a local technical college, BCIT, and enrolled in the six-month start-your-own-business, you know, kind of program. So at least I could sort of learn what I didn't know. So that was kind of how I overcame that challenge. And then from there... It's just been experience. Like I just say at this point, I have a street MBA. I've just lived it all and I've, it's all just hacked it through. I've learned from peers. Fortunately, in my case, I met my business partner, Suzanne Siemens in 1999. So I was okay. I was on my own for about six or seven years and doing okay, making it work, but not truly understanding what I was doing. But meeting her changed all that. She was a CPA and so really had the business experience, but was so unhappy. Like, it's interesting. She was looking in a mirror in a way, like she was so unhappy working in her corporate job. Like she was everything that I knew might have happened to me if I'd kind of gone into that environment. And she was unhappy with the values and being worked to the bone. And and so anyways, we met and she quit her job and decided to work together and formed a new company and been working together ever since. So that was a really important, like I'm a big believer in partnership and I know obviously you got to find the right person and all that, but it's really hard to do these things by yourself, no matter how smart you are. And there's just so many different skills that are required. And also it's kind of lonely, I think, especially at the beginning when it is just you. So if you can find somebody else to uh, be on the ride with you, it certainly has a lot of value. Sort of the beginning challenge was you were getting in your own way. Your ideas about business were getting in your own way. And so you took that step to say, okay, well, how can I challenge this? Because of course, We have to buy and sell things all the time. And so why don't I just be a part of selling something, but from a values-driven place, from a place of, I want to follow me and I want to have other people follow these values. And no one's doing it with these particular set of values, so I can offer something. But you realized you were your own block to your success initially. Like, you were your challenge. (laughs) Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, Yeah. it's funny how that works, right? 
that was sort of my late 80s, early 90s, like the tail end of the second wave feminism. It was different than it is now. And it was more like, uh, just, you know, check out everything, don't have anything to do with that. And it's like, no, we got to change that. We got to build a new system here. So not just walk away. You challenged your ideas about it and said, I'd rather be a part of the, the solution to building something that's going to be more fruitful. I can grow different types of fruit. I can make it a new way of eating fruit that is not already existing in this world. And then in doing that, you also then realized in you're sharing your story, okay, well, there's also this component of skills. So I'm going to go take a course and get myself some skills training. But first I have to get through this sort of mental hurdle that maybe fruit is going to, you know, apples can taste a different way. Did you know? <laughs> totally. I love the fruit metaphor. That's that's so good. And now look, I mean, we've got this entire orchard forest ecosystem. Like to me, entrepreneurship is actually how we redo capitalism. I don't think it can necessarily be these big behemoth companies. I don't know if they've got what it takes, even though they've got the scale to actually make the difference. Like, you know, I guess the day that Google and Nike and Apple become B Corps, maybe, but they don't seem to like that. Like, look at what's happened with Danone, right? It's just not in their DNA. So I really, and, and this is what my folks about, believe in small mission-driven entrepreneur folks taking matters into their own hands, as opposed to, especially in the post-COVID era, that is what is going to remake. It's those individuals collectively that are really going to make a whole new world for us all. Since you mentioned your book, what's a challenge that you're facing now in your current business or, or businesses that you would like to dive into today? For context, the business that I was speaking about earlier was originally called Lunapads for a very, very long time and then rebranded as Isle in March of 2020, which is short for Period Isle. We decided to give it a big old makeover. So that business has been going since 1993. And there are a couple others I'll skip over. We can maybe circle back around to. But the book that you mentioned that I'm working on, in fact, that I mentioned, is called The Greater Good, <laughs> Social Entrepreneurship for Everyday People Who Want to Change the World. And it is coming out in October of this year. And I'm so excited. It's taken me about a year and a half to write it. So now it's all the copy editing and all the rest of it. But I would say other than the, just the challenge of like writing 80,000 words. In fact, I, I wrote way more than that and that's, you know, got pared down. So let's call it 100,000 words. Mining through 28 years of my career and looking at a million things in the same way that it was hard for me to become an entrepreneur to kind of identify myself, to own that. It was really hard for me to own being a writer. Because I think I've seen it as like, oh, it's a vanity project. It's just brought up all this, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of self-criticism, a lot of like, oh, don't think you're so smart. Ugh, like all the yuck has come out, right? I even have a chapter about called Dancing with the Demons, just about dealing with self-doubt. And so I would say just going, you know what? I'm a writer. I am a writer. I am a writer. I am a writer. I am an even author. Like, you know, I've got it going to have a published book coming out. And that just feels incredible to me. I'm still kind of like pinch myself, you know, every time I see the picture of the cover, I'm like, wow. So that's taken some transformation. And the other piece of it too is uh, the flip side in embracing that newness of that identity. I've been asking myself the question of, so what about the entrepreneur part? 
And what about my commitments to Isle? What about my commitment? I've got another venture that's kind of under development called Nestworks. That's a family-friendly shared workspace that I've been working on for several years. And going, okay, what are you what are you letting go of as much as you are claiming and from a very empowered, very wonderful, exciting place, but it's like that shedding of the snake skin of the things that I changing the language, the things that I used to do. And now I'm going on and becoming more of a teacher and a mentor and a speaker and a writer. And I sort of feel like I'm leaving something, like I'm kind of bailing on something in a way, but I also know I just can't, I don't feel like I can do all of it. What's the story you're telling yourself when you are shifting and noticing the shift in your identity? I'd say the stage I'm at right now, there's a bit of guilt and uncertainty. Like, I don't really know what I'm moving into, honestly. I don't know what I've done. I've, I've written this book. I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know what impact it will have. There's a lot of kind of uncertainty and unknown. And then there's a deep sense of attachment. Like in many ways, the ventures that I've created, and this includes the book, feel like children to me. In that sense of like, they sort of need me and I want to make sure they're okay. And It's hard to explain. I only have one biological child of like, once that person comes out of you or that entity, that book, that idea, whatever, There's this like, oh my God, what have I done? It becomes separate from you and kind of takes on a life of its own. So I'd say there's a sense of loss of control and uncertainty, but also, I don't know, if life has taught me nothing else, it's like this isn't, and the entrepreneurial journey, like so much language that we have around it is around make it happen and hustle and move fast and break things and disrupt things and do, you know, this kind of very masculine kind of shake it up hustle culture thing. And I just am not into it at all. The message, I guess, that I just get loud and clear is like, just be with what happens. Just observe, receive and take it from there. You don't need to, it doesn't have to look a certain way. It doesn't, you know, this outcome, all these goals, all these rocks and stuff like that. To me, it doesn't allow for a much more organic emergent process, which is what I'm interested in. And so I would say I'm trying to cultivate curiosity as just sort of my life raft in all of this, as opposed to my goal is to be, you know, get over this whole la 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 thing or feeling guilty about something or whatever. It's just like, stand back, see what wants to happen. Tell me more about what that guilt says to you in that process of like you're saying they're kind of all children they're all kind of your children all your projects all your businesses all the things you've invested into are like different babies that you've been working on or growing for all these years what is the voice of that guilt saying to you for example if I stop putting as much time into say nestworks or something or aisle then those things will suffer And that'll be my fault because I've kind of wandered off to go and go on a book tour or do something else for all I know, right? And there's that. And I think that's what I need to work through because it's like, it's not helpful. And it also, it's not very empowering. It's not, those organizations are fine. The teams that lead them are amazing. You know, the world is not resting on my shoulders. You know, I think an underlying belief that it's all on me and that isn't very, helpful and also doesn't really empower other people, right? It doesn't really sort of go, you know what? They've got this. And whether I show up or not, it changes things, but it doesn't break it. The guilt almost comes from a place of overwrought self-importance. 
in a way. You're talking about the guilt, and I hear you said it's about belief. So it sounds like it's tied to a specific belief. What do you believe happens if you focus attention on something else while the fruits of your garden, your trees are still growing and blossoming and people are still eating apples in different ways and picking oranges and eating all the fruit in the way that you've cultivated it. Exactly what you're saying, like that's the lesson that needs to be learned is, and because I'm this, my sort of side gig is I'm a gardener. And I know that when I walk away from my garden, it's gonna keep growing. And I got to come back and pull some weeds every now and again. But really, the work's being done by the plants not and the sun, not by me. It's a healthier way of looking at it as opposed to this idea that it's like, <gasps> everything will die if I walk away or if I plant some other plants. Because really, that's what I'm doing is I'm planting other plants. I'm not going off and starting a chainsaw factory or something. You know what I mean? It all supports the other things in some way. And I, I was actually working on a document to that effect today, like just trying to wrap my mind around how time that I spend promoting my book is going to help Isle in this case, right? And even though it's not like, hey, buy this menstrual pad, hey, buy these period underwear, it's like telling our story, which the book does, which a lot of people don't know, and a lot of our customers don't know, I think it creates a different kind of bond. Like it makes people care about the company as opposed to just, did you know that this pad holds four tampons worth of menzies? And do you know it'll replace 200 and plus disposable pads? It's like, you know, I want to get people to sort of fall in love with our story and relate to us as human beings as opposed to talking about the statistics of the greenhouse gas emissions that are saved when you switch to reusable menstrual products. Like, I guess I just need to look at the value in a different way and that I am helping and I am doing something. I'm just doing it in my own way. And that's what I need to validate. It's just not, it's not as measurable as like, oh, I, you know, I landed this new sales contract that's for X number of dollars or something, you know? What strikes me is the theme in your experience from starting your company, your first company, to now when you speak of your current challenge is that you're doing it in your own way, as you just said, and that if you can recognize and if you can acknowledge that you are doing it in your own way, then maybe your identity can follow along with you and say, yes, that is truly your identity. It has actually never changed. It's just shifted its focus from one tree to another tree to another tree, but they're all still standing tall beside each other, growing the various fruits or vegetables or whatever else has been planted. Yeah, no, it's true. And so there's this idea that I talk about in the book called radiance. And what radiance means is I came up with it as a word because I was having trouble. Like, I really hate the traditional notion of scale and what it means. Like in the business world, like you're always supposed to be scaling and, you know, your idea has to be scalable. And it, and what that basically translates to is infinite exponential growth. So going back to our natural world, think about a tree. Tree only gets so tall. It only gets so tall. And same with human beings or animals. We get to a certain we achieve maturity. There's kind of a growth spurt. Like when, when we're young, we grow very quickly and there's this kind of like, you know, go, go, go. And then we mature and then there's kind of plateau that I, under optimal circumstances is called thriving. And then we reproduce and then we die. And that's how it goes, whether you're a tree or a 
chipmunk or a flower or, or whatever, that's the way it works, right? So this model that we see put again and again and again, especially, it's, and this is all coming out of the Silicon Valley tech kind of world. The only thing that occurs in nature that mimics that growth pattern of infinite exponential growth is cancer. So we need to ask ourselves, why are we imposing that model? And, and I'm referencing work done by a British economist called Kate Rayworth, who has come up with a very big theory all about that she calls donut economics. So I'm kind of giving the little Coles notes on it, but it really, as a gardener, it really lands for me. And so when it, to me, radiance was a way of reframing, like it's what I think about as a three-dimensional, inclusive of impact, inclusive of everything scale. We don't necessarily want to go up into the, everything's up into the right, everything's up into the right. It's like, it doesn't have to be. Like that's kind of destructive. That kills a lot of businesses. It kills a lot of people from even getting into the game. Like if that's what defines success and that's what you feel you have to do in order to be successful, God asks why. I just think the entire rationale for why we get into business, why we have startups needs to, at the very least, broaden, if not change really, really, really radically. The whole, all of you and all of what you've worked on and everything coming together is kind of founded on changing the norms, changing the way that things are done. Like if we go back to the planting trees, you're planting trees in a new way and you're saying, let's try it this way. Like everything is, let's challenge our assumptions. Let's challenge the way that we're doing things and let's look at it in a new light. Does that resonate with you? As Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. We've just kind of put ourselves into these boxes and that aren't helpful. That's just, there needs to be a far more creative, expansive approach. Even I question like the meaningful distinction between for-profit and non-profit legal entities. And I just, I don't really care. Like what, we're, honestly, what's the difference? Like why bother, right? Like, okay, choose one, but why can't we choose more, you know, or something else? Like, that's just the way I think, you know, it's just, we always seem to Human beings want something a little more reductive or everything's got to go in its place. And I think that we need to think in a much more expansive, organic, intuitive kind of way, especially in business, actually, because it's one of the most constrained fields, right? There's rules, right? And it's like, yeah, I get there's numbers and there's money and there, you know, and so on and so forth. But what's really missing is emotion and intuition and creativity and things like that that have been sort of pushed to the side in the name of you know the numbers making sense and then suddenly nobody's having any fun and and then we're living in this completely extractive economy right it's like why don't we create a relational economy why don't we factor in the care work that women do in the economy it's not even counted I'm all for a major overhaul of our thinking on all of those fronts because at the rate we're going, just look around you, see where it's gotten us, right? The climate's being destroyed. People's, workers' lives, human lives aren't valued. And we're making all this garbage, right? How do you challenge your own assumptions in what you're talking about? It's fundamental in how you approach your work and how you approach your life, ultimately. What do you do to challenge your own assumptions and challenge your own notions or your own ideas of how things should be? That's a great question. And I think as a white cisgendered 
woman living in an affluent Western culture on occupied indigenous land. Like, I think that someone like me, the best thing you can do is interrogate your social privilege and see what's there. It's not a level playing field. We're not, not everybody has the same opportunities. And so I would say that interrogating those assumptions is the most important thing that I can do, especially, I mean, if you're going to say you're a social entrepreneur the way that I do, you've really got to live by that, you know, like you've really got to show up to that and not just go, oh, I get it. I'm done with all that. I did my land acknowledgement and I'm, you know, whatever. I did my Jedi workshop or I'm a B Corp or I'm, you know, whatever. It's like, as soon as you fall into those assumptions or just let them rest, you start making mistakes. I'll give you an example. At Isle, we do a lot of work around, well, what's known as period poverty. It's also known as menstrual equity. The lack of access to menstrual products of any variety anywhere, especially kind of gone at it in the global south because it affects girls' education in particular. Anyways, we've had many, many projects ranging from donations to things that are way more elaborate. But when we first started out, we got asked for a donation from a group in Zimbabwe. And so we sent over a whole bunch of washable menstrual pads because we thought that that would help, right? Well, we heard back from the recipients and they said, well, the girls don't have underwear. And I'm like, okay, so this is what it looks like when white Western people think that they know what the right thing is to do for this kind of a population. And you don't ask. You just kind of lens it through your own experience, which of course has nothing to do with somebody else's experience half a world away. Anyways, it was a learning experience. And then from there, we developed this whole other intake of what are the cultural conditions around where this donation is going to occur? What about soap? What about water? What are the menstrual taboos? Is it even socially safe? for a girl to wash her own menstrual pads and hang them up in her backyard, whatever that may or may not, you know, like you've really got to pay attention to that kind of thing. Because if you don't, you're just projecting your own values onto something and you may not end up helping somebody at all, you know? So what's the point? And one of my messages is for social entrepreneurs, it's like you can have all the good intentions in the world, especially if you're a person carrying social privilege or not, filtering those through some self-awareness, you could actually end up doing more harm than good. And you just really need to not assume much. <laughs> so how do you challenge your own identity and your own lens in these experiences of running social enterprises? You've got to look at the, who are you working with? Who are you recruiting? How diverse the folks that you're working with? That's a big one. Whose voices are you centering? What topics are you addressing? It's multifaceted. And I guess I would say to it too, you can sort of fall into a trap of what I'll call moral perfectionism. Perfectionism is a nasty beast. I think you want to land somewhere between being responsible and accountable and conscious without feeling like you need to be perfect because that's another tool of white supremacy. You know, especially for women too, it's like, you gotta be now, okay, I gotta be sexy, I gotta be smart, I gotta be this, I gotta save the world. And it's never gonna be possible to do that. Are you holding yourself to perfection, going back to your initial, what is the challenge now? What are you facing ahead of you? It's this identity challenge. In that identity challenge that you have, are you holding yourself to perfectionist 
standards and ideas when you think, I'm going to take on this writer identity now. But what does that mean for my entrepreneurial identity? Is there perfectionism underlying that experience for you? Well, probably. I think that's probably where the guilt comes in, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I wasn't perfect. It's something I struggle with. I feel I am extremely self-critical. Like if I screw something up, I feel it to my core. And it's just part of who I am. I think also I feel a ton of guilt. I got social privilege up the yin-yang. And I know it's not helpful to feel guilty about it, but there's part of me that does. Didn't ask for this, didn't want this, don't like this power dynamic in this world that keeps pushing me to the top of the heap without doing really anything to deserve it. So what is my task then? Like, get over the guilt. That doesn't help. That's not serving anybody. The question then becomes, what do you actually do? You know, how are you going to elevate? And the voices of what I call everyday people. Now, in the title of the book, you may recall, is social entrepreneurship for everyday people. And everyday people is basically code for non-cis, white, male, heterosexual tech guys, because those are the voices I want to center. Those are the people whose leadership has been excluded. And so that's what I'm trying to do. So in a way, the book is a response to how do you leverage privilege in order to center and elevate the voices of folks who have not had the opportunity, have not been handed the megaphone quite the same way that you have. I would challenge that when you say that voice of guilt is not helpful, kind of pushing it away. I actually think it's essential. I think that that guilt, experiencing it and moving through it is essential to the work of shifting and changing identity and therefore then doing further work to change and challenge the status quo and the norms and what already exists in society. Because what it tells me in sort of underlayer when you talk about it, that guilt tells me what you value. And so then those values are what you're using in your identity to shape what you're doing. And so then if I took that even further, I would say, then your identity is fully and wholly made of someone who wants to impact and influence change. And so every project that you're doing every business that you have is touching in that space. And so they're no longer fragmented anymore. They're all connected. I see the connection so much more clearly. I got there in going through or moving through or experiencing what it's like to imagine feeling the guilt or the weight of what you're talking about. That's a great reflection. Thank you. That's why you're a coach. Because <laughs> I guess for me, I just sort of go, when I experience guilt, feels like self-pity or feels like, oh, look at me feeling sorry for myself for being so privileged. The cognitive dissonance there is just crazy. But I think you're right. It does motivate something. I wouldn't feel that way unless I cared. If I didn't care, I wouldn't feel guilty, and then I wouldn't have this sense of this just deep drive, this desire to pursue the projects that I can. I mean, I could have done anything. I could have had some kind of normal mainstream, just make the money and run kind of career very easily. And I just knew that I never, I just didn't want that. And it just felt too constrained and just wanted to make a difference. I remember marching on what used to be called Earth Day in the 1970s in Vancouver. And that was my first experience of like a political action. And, 
you know, walking with a group of people about something I cared about. And to go back to your question, that's another point of inspiration, I think, in my life was just realizing that you could take over the entire street if you want, like the place where there was supposed to be cars normally and be like, actually, this is our space now. Does it shift your perspectives on your identity as you are editing, revising, publishing your book, when you think about it from a place of how the guilt can serve your experience. When I look at your identity or the need to shift your identity, but kind of having to let go of the former ones, and I'm tying it to your experience of guilt. And so if you think about guilt as a process to move through and you think about how that shapes and has shaped and continues to shape the values that are driving any entrepreneurial activity that you're doing. Can you see the interconnectedness between all your businesses and your new identity as a writer and an author? And does that shift how you view your identity? Yeah, I think it does. And I think actually even this conversation has helped me really move forward on just reframing this idea of guilt. I think we can't lose sight of the fact that I'm still a woman in a male-dominated world. And that kind of world doesn't really like when women get bigger and stronger and louder. And especially as I'm aging and... I want to be proud of that. I want to get louder and I'm not done yet. And I think I'm entering menopause at this point in my life. And sort of, it's kind of poetic actually, when you think about aisle, because it's like, it's all about menstruation. And now I'm kind of getting to the end of my menstrual life. And so it's time for other things. And I loved reading a story in the, um, some form of research about killer whales. I don't know if you saw it in the media the other day and a killer whale, female killer whales live to be like over 100. Male killer whales live to be about 30 or 40. And so scientists were questioning, why is it that female killer whales live so far beyond menopause? Because they're not reproducing, like they're not calving. Why have them around? Well, it turns out they lead the entire pod. So they know where the food is. They've got the years of experience of knowing where all these things are. So they just, they become the matriarchs. They become the leaders of the pod because they have the best information about where to find the salmon. You can look at that and you can say, okay, there's a leadership quality inherent in these female whales. And so they're here actually to guide something larger. They're not feeling guilty about not having babies anymore. And so that actually really inspired me. It was like, I want to be a whale. <laughs> I want to be an orca whale because I've got now 28 years of experience as a social entrepreneur and for-profit, non-profit, unprofitable for-profit, whatever, like all of it. And so it's just more evolution. It's just more letting myself grow into who I need to be as opposed to judging it. You said this conversation shifted that even for you. What has it shifted? It's the language of guilt. It's like, forget it. I'm done. I think it needs to have a different word for me or something like I, consciousness or awareness or something like that. Also unpacking the guilt as it pertains to social privilege and the guilt as it pertains to me just kind of moving on in my life into different projects and letting go or lessening my involvement in other things. And 
I think one can stay and the other one can go. You know what I mean? As in the guilt in one might be there, whereas the other guilt is not. You're saying they're two separate guilt Yeah, no, exactly. As it pertains to awareness of social privilege and motivation, it's like, yep, great. That was a really great reflection that you gave me there. That is super helpful. But the reflecting on myself, feeling guilty about me moving on into my orcaness, it's like that's not helping me. That's the place where it, it can be relinquished, I think, and set aside because the world needs me to be an orca mama, not somebody feeling small. If you embody that orca, what do you think she's saying that's different from what you're telling yourself in those moments of guilt? What do you imagine that that story is that she holds that is so different from how your relationship is with your evolution into this new phase of your life? I like the expression that we teach what we need to learn, because a lot of the stuff that I talk about in the book are things that I am in this, you know, like that was part of the way I told it. It wasn't coming out the other side and going, okay, guys, I've got this figured out. Let me come back and bring you along with me. I mean, there's a little bit of that, but to me, there's a lot of power in just being in real time with people, like just for that feeling of locking arms and going, hey, I'm scared too. I'm angry too. I don't know what to do next either. But if we lock arms and do this together, then there's power in that. That's something that's that gives us courage to move forward. I think maybe to back to the whale metaphor, there's something about remembering the power of the pod and that as a leader, yes, you're out in front, but you're part of a group, you're part of a community. And that's another big message of the book. You don't do this yourself by yourself. You don't have to. It's practically impossible. And that's why you need to cultivate relationship and community as part of your strategy, as part of your plan to do anything, in my opinion, but especially if you're going to be starting a venture. You've talked about partnership and you've talked about community throughout this whole conversation from the beginning to now and how much you value it and how much it's really contributed. And so if you take that perspective, it seems like that is a a very essential component to the guilt and to the shifting identity is to say, I'm just taking the new role in that pod. I have this new leadership position or I have this new female role identity like a female whale does, guiding people to the food or guiding them to you know, safety or whatever that looks like and translating that to your own life and your own experience may just completely shift or may even eliminate the guilt because then it's just this is how, how I exist to shape change now rather than I should be doing it in a particular way. It is, this is the way that I exist now. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to lead the pod today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I love that. That lands for me totally. And we all judge and criticize ourselves in so many ways. And I can only speak to my lived experience, again, as a cisgendered woman, but I was raised to believe that you've always got to be prettier and you've always got to be super smart, but not too smart, not smarter than the guys. Strong, but not too strong, but emotional, and but not too emotional. And caring, but don't cry. And these gender binary boxes that we're in that suck and that need to be absolutely dynamited. And I was socialized, you know, like, okay, I've managed to bust out of it in so many ways. Like the, the moment of washing my own menstrual pads, that was huge. That was life-changing. And for that reason, because it was just like 
actually, what's gross is how we treat periods. It's not periods themselves, people. And I'm really excited, speaking of the Orca, back to her, about aging and kind of embracing that and being with that and seeing what that brings. And ageism is just a toxic social bias that I'd like to personally take a stand against in the way I've taken a stand as a feminist in the way I try and take a stand as an anti-racist ally as I try and take a stand as an environmentalist. And that is something is really important to me because I'm, I'm starting to feel it and see it. And as I get older and becomes a little more apparent that the world is not quite as interested in you and tapping that and embracing it and going, yeah, I'm not, I don't want to fight that fight. You mentioned your childhood just a moment ago. And it really, what really strikes me is that you as a child were conditioned to consider and think about your role as a female in a particular way. Sort of strikes me that as you're sharing this, there were a lot of ideas about how you were conditioned to be or told what should exist as a young you, which carries forward those ideas that were instilled with carry forward with us into being a teenager, being a young adult, being an adult, having our own kids, like it just continues forward. And so how that voice may still exist, not in a positive or negative way so much as a voice that comes forward in those moments where identity shifts happen now in your life or as you're going through them. I'm going to have to wrap it up here, but is there anything you'd like to say to kind of close that will be the closing remarks when people listen to this. It's been a really interesting conversation and I would just encourage people to stay curious. I think we're too caught up thinking in terms of goals and I'd like people to feel more curious and more optimistic about their lives and about what they're capable of. I think a lot of people tell themselves they can't be entrepreneurs because they don't look like Mark Zuckerberg or don't want to build a big app and don't want to go and be on Dragon's Den. And, but I do believe that there are a lot of people out there with really great ideas for making the world a better place. And that if they could begin to see themselves as entrepreneurs, as change makers, as people who have the agency to create those projects, they don't need to be for profit. They don't need to be huge. But just to start that that's what I want to see. That's kind of my dream. And that's my dream for the book is that it it's this kind of manifesto of encouragement for folks who are like, oh, but, you know, I'm just a teacher. Or I'm just a parent or I'm, I'm an engineer. Or I'm not an entrepreneur. Or I'm, you know, whatever the story they have about themselves is that they become willing to open themselves up to using these amazing tools to create change in the world because the world needs it. And if you can access, if you can tap into both what you've done in terms of understanding your identity and how it shaped you and also understanding your inspiration and how that's feeding your desires and your values to do things, then you can create whatever it is you want to create. And it doesn't have to look a certain way, like you said. It doesn't have to be the apples of the world. It can be a new social venture that's maybe going to make an even bigger difference in the world than the large corporations ever will or could. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for showing up for us, for this conversation, and for everyone who gets to experience what you've had to share today. Absolute pleasure, Isabel. Thanks so much for the work you're doing and including me in it. My pleasure. We appreciate you tuning into Coaching by Bell. This podcast is made possible by the support of our listeners, community, and guests. 
To learn more about how to donate or to contact us about guest suggestions or anything else, head over to www.coachingbybell.com. Every story shared has the possibility to unlock greater potential. Coaching by Bell does this one story at a time. Thanks for listening.